some Christians have a tendency to act as if the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And such thinking actually contradicts one of the most basic claims of Christianity. It's this idea of the incarnation, that God becomes man, that God takes on flesh. See, one of the foundational claims of Christianity is that in Christ, God is redeeming his creation. God becomes man in order to redeem creation. And when we look at the world or we look at our lives, we must remember that God is a redeeming God who is in the act of redeeming his creation. This word redeem literally means to buy back. So we could put this another way. God is buying back his creation in Christ. That is what is happening on the cross, in the resurrection, and in the ascension of Jesus, God is buying back his creation. And in Ruth 3 and 4, we have this beautiful picture of a God who is redeeming his creation. We have this picture of what God does in story form so that it impacts our emotions and our hearts in a unique way. And we have to remember Ruth's situation. She's a widow in a foreign land. She's vulnerable, and she's in a culture that shames her lack of children. This is an honor-shame culture that's very different from our Western world. There's actually shame in her situation. And for her to experience redemption, her situation needs to change. It needs to be rectified. She needs to be brought out of her situation and put into something new. She needs healing. She needs protection. Notice how Ruth 3, 1 puts this. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Rest is a fascinating word here because it's all over the early chapters of Genesis. For example, in Genesis 2.15, long before, or, or the chapter before there's the fall, before sin enters the world, while, while creation is still very good, we're told that God takes man, and literally the word here is, is a related root word, causes him to rest in the garden. Most translations translate it as put him in the garden, but literally it's this idea of resting him in the garden. But we know the story doesn't stay that way. It doesn't continue with this rest. Sin disrupts the narrative in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we meet Cain who kills his brother. And, and at the end of that chapter, through Cain's family line, we, we meet one of his ancestors or one of his uh, descendants who perpetuates and celebrates this murder cycle. But then in chapter 5, we have what appears to be this boring list of names, but it's actually deeply significant because in that list of names, we have a contrast to Cain's family. And in that list of names, out of Seth, we get relief as we're introduced to a man named Noah, whose name means rest, because he will bring rest or relief to the cycle of sin. So in Genesis God brings relief to his broken creation. He restores, at least in some form, the rest that was originally supposed to characterize the creation. And we could trace this theme throughout all of Scripture. We see it in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 95, and we see it played out and played with in Hebrews as it speaks of God's rest that is ultimately coming to culmination in Christ. But here in Ruth, Ruth needs relief. She needs this rest. So Naomi, her mother-in-law, gives her some advice. 
go find Boaz, and, and God will provide rest through him. And so Ruth does exactly what Naomi says. After Boaz works and eats, he lies down in front of his grain. This was a standard way to protect the harvest through the night. So Ruth sneaks in and quietly lies down at his feet. A few hours later, Boaz wakes up to find Ruth lying there as well. Of course, he doesn't recognize her because it's dark, so he says, Who are you? And her response is in verse 9, I am Ruth, your servant. And then, don't miss this part, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This request to spread his wings over her is essentially a marriage proposal. Boaz is an eligible redeemer, she says. In the Old Testament law, there was a provision to protect vulnerable people. This provision is the Redeemer. The role of the Redeemer falls to the closest of kin. For example, if a man dies, his wife and children should be redeemed by his brother. If that's not possible, an uncle should do it, then a cousin, then a relative within the clan. The Redeemer takes the responsibility for the property and for the people. It's a way of ensuring that those people are not left in a vulnerable situation. It's a way of ensuring that the property stays to the family. It's a way of honoring the dead. Now, Ruth needs a redeemer. It's the world she lives in. It may be hard in 2020 for us to think like this and think, well, why can't she just do it on her own? But in her world, she has to have a redeemer. Her husband is dead. Her husband's brother is dead. She has no protection. And on this course, her life is destined for tragedy and disaster. So she asked Boaz to do this. And that's an incredibly bold move, by the way. It's really sort of a subversive move in the ancient uh, Near Eastern culture. And it does something that the Bible is a bit unique on here. It highlights the way women play an essential role in God's plan of redemption. You can see that all all over Matthew 1, which we'll get to a little bit more next week, but where we see that God's plan of redemption in the story of Scripture is often carried out through these women who do bold things. Notice also... The language here. She asked him to spread his wings over her. Remember the blessing Boaz prayed in 2.12, where he mentioned that Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of the Lord under Yahweh? That's the same sort of language being picked up again here. Ruth takes refuge under the Lord, and now she needs some tangible refuge by finding refuge in Boaz and in his house. We are like Ruth in this way. We need a Redeemer. We need healing and rest. But the question is, from what exactly? We don't find ourselves maybe in the same situation as Ruth. But biblical redemption has several aspects. First, we need redemption from our sins. And this is probably the one that's most basic to, uh, to most of us. We have broken God's law, so we bear that guilt. And that guilt results in alienation from God. As human beings, our sin drives us away from relationship with God, from the life we were made for. It's Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. That that is a symbol of what it means to be driven away from the presence of God. And this gives us, this alienation, gives us a constant sense of angst 
and restlessness, trying to make sense out of life. And this is the spirit of our age now where we're wrestling with these questions of authenticity. Who are we? Where are we going? Where are we from? All of those great questions. And there's also the punishment that results from our sins. We tend to think of this as a wrathful God, and and that's certainly one way to think about it. But sin also wrecks who we are as humans. It's a destructive force. It's not just a retributive um, form of justice that we experience when we talk about sin's punishment. See, sin is dehumanizing, making us less human. It is shaping us counter to the way God made us. We see this in the story of of Genesis 1 through 3. In the image of God, he created them. But then in chapter 3, they're told that this, this fruit from the tree will make them like God. And the irony of that is they are already like God. And the irony of it is that when they eat from the fruit, they become less like God because they become less human. They're, they're, distorting the image of God in them, which is what it means to be human. So our sin, it fractures us, it it dehumanizes, it, and and it, it impacts our relationships, our families, our communities, our churches, our world. Everything is touched by it. Second, we need redemption from sin, capital S, Satan, and death. Here I'm not talking about individual sins, but sin as a problem and a state of being. See, sin in the New Testament is an enslaving force that dictates what we do. It's not just this series of mistakes we make. It is actually this mess that we find ourselves in. It is this power that is greater than ourselves. And on top of that, there is a real spiritual conflict happening. We're introduced to this character named Satan, and he wields the power of sin to destroy God's creation. That has always been his goal. We saw it in chapter 3 where he is devaluing and dehumanizing and destroying God's creation. And the ultimate result of sin is death. When you eat from the tree, you will die. We don't just need forgiveness. That's one aspect of redemption, but it's only the beginning. We need freedom from sin, Satan, and death. Third, we need redemption to live new lives. Wholeness is not just a matter of wiping the slate clean. Just like Ruth needs a new sort of life, the redemption we need must produce something new in us. It must make us different sorts of people, bringing us nearer to God, bringing us closer to each other, which is all restoring God's image in us. So redemption has this positive or restorative aspect to it. It's not just, well, you're forgiven, now you're good to go, but we need healing. We need wholeness. And fourth, the world we live in needs redemption. And by world, I'm not specifically talking about other people. That's so easy to do and would cause us to miss the real point. By the world, I mean both natural creation and our community structures. I've already said that we as humans need redemption, but Romans 8 tells us that even creation needs redemption. That's why our weather patterns are chaotic. They don't have perfect rest. The world is not the very good world of Genesis 1 and 2, at least not in the sense that it is stable and at rest. It it is still good because it is God's creation, but it is distorted. And then there's our community structures. No organization, government, or nation is perfect. They're all tainted by a fallen world. They are all in deep need of redemption. 
Now, what does redemption mean? For Ruth, redemption means being brought into a family and given a family. It turns out that there is a redeemer before Boaz, so that one has the first claim because he is a closer relative. Boaz being a righteous man and doing everything the way that the law prescribes informs this other redeemer of the situation. We see this in Ruth 4, beginning in verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would uh, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Upon hearing this, the man says, I will redeem it. But there's another aspect to this redemption. It's not just taking ownership of physical property. So verse 5, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, she must be given children because this is perpetuating uh, the family. And at these words, the man turns down his right to redeem Ruth, probably because he's thinking about his current heirs and, and, and what he's going to pass down. So Ruth, or Boaz, becomes the redeemer. And by becoming the redeemer, we see Ruth's redemption. Ruth is given a home, a husband, and the hope of children. That is redemption for Ruth. For us, redemption is very similar. We just have to sort of drill down and see what it means spiritually. Redemption means wholeness, healing, and transformation. Wholeness because we are fractured, full of desires and inclinations that are destructive. There's a phrase in Christian thinking that probably goes back to Augustine to describe this. He said, we are curved in on ourselves. Imagine taking a spoon and bending it into a horseshoe shape. That's what's going on inside of us. That's what it means to say that the image of God is distorted in us. Martin Luther explained this idea. He said, Scripture described man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes and in all things seeks only himself. You see, it's that desire to become like God, to distort the image of God, not to press in towards loving God and loving others, but to be turned in on ourselves. Our fractured nature causes us to be self-willed and self-interested. Even at our best efforts, our even our best efforts are often self-serving. Consider your religious life. We may convince ourselves that we are humbly serving God, but often we are attempting to prove to God or to others that we are good people. That is entirely self-interested. And this self-interest creates havoc in our lives and in our world. We need healing. In fact, we need surgery. You see, we have a disease of scoliosis. We're bent in on ourselves, and only reconstructive surgery can bend us back. And then we need transformation 
to live in such a way that we don't bend back in on ourselves. We need this physical therapy, this soul therapy, where we are progressively restored, where we learn to use new muscles, where, where we are shaped into the way that we were originally meant to be shaped in. It's this progressive restoration of God's image in us. That, that's what redemption means. Who can redeem us? The God of the Bible is a redeeming God. In Ruth, Boaz's character represents the God who redeems. Notice that Boaz does everything righteously. He makes the offer to the other redeemer first, and he provides food for Ruth and Naomi, and he ensures that she gets an answer to her pleas. But Boaz's righteousness is only a picture of, of God's righteousness. Boaz's righteousness is only a shadow of the righteousness of Christ. When John, in 1 John 2, talks about the advocate we have in the heavenly courtrooms, he refers to Jesus as the righteous one. Jesus is an able redeemer because he is not like us. He has not been in on himself. He's not self-serving. He's not fractured. He is whole. He is perfect. He is righteous. And Boaz is also relentless. Look what Naomi says about him in 3.18. Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest that will settle the matter today. You can be patient because Boaz will settle it. Boaz pursues Ruth's redemption with absolute commitment. It's unbreakable commitment. So it is with God. Long before we had any thoughts about God, he is orchestrating our redemption. And here we find in this, as we think about this from a a, a biblical perspective, we find the first glimpse of the Trinity. Before creation, before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are planning the redemption of a world that will go off the rails. Yet before creation, they're planning this. That's why Ephesians talks about being chosen before the foundation of the world, or why 1 Peter talks about the Lamb being known before the foundation of the world, or why Revelation talks about the Lamb being slain before the foundation of the world. Isn't it breathtaking? God isn't surprised by the world or our sin. Before He created, He had already determined to redeem his creation. And then when the time came, the fullness of time, as Scripture puts it, when that time comes, within history, he acts decisively on the cross, settling the matter once and for all. And this works itself out as we think about the story of Scripture. In Genesis 12, God makes an unbreakable covenant, and he perpetuates those covenants and he redeems Israel from Egypt on the basis of those covenants. And through Christ, he is redeeming creation and the church on the basis of those covenants. The redemption of Naomi and Ruth is only a shadow of what happens in Christ. It is a piece to the puzzle, but the bigger story here is what God began before the foundation of the world, that in Christ, he would restore and redeem his creation. What should our response be to these things? Well, let's go back to the story because it gives us some direction. Toward the end of the story, Ruth has a son. This is God's redemption. It has brought wholeness to her, and it has brought a new life to her. 
Notice that 4.13 in Ruth says, the Lord gave her conception. He is the God who redeems. He brings life where there was once death. And here is the appropriate response in 4.14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. Put another way, look what God has done. Blessed be the Lord. Now what might all this mean for us today? We're really pretty good at talking about the forgiving nature of grace that we understand grace is being forgiven even when we don't deserve it. But we don't usually talk enough about the transformative nature of grace. And this is a major aspect in the Bible. Redemption means we are set free and empowered to be changed. In Christ, you can be changed. You can be something new. Are you angry or resentful? God offers you more than forgiveness for your outburst. He offers you healing and transformation so that you don't have to keep living in those patterns. Yes, there is a way out of those patterns, and it is in the power of God's redemption. Are you enslaved by an addiction? Christ died not just to forgive you for the mistakes you've made, but to break the chains to give you the power to overcome? Do you feel corrupted and broken? If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside you. There is new creation regardless of where you've been, what you've done, or what's been done to you. This means you may be holding grudges, but Christ has empowered you to forgive. You may feel powerless to change, but Christ has empowered you to change. You may feel worthless and insignificant, but Christ values you and has empowered you to serve him. This is what it means to be redeemed. Christianity has nothing to do with trying harder or being a good person. It all comes down to dependence. I can't, but God can When we admit our need, redemption can begin, which does have the positive aspect that forms us and shapes us into the person God created us to be. But it's not through our efforts. See, the key to all of this is that we never get past admitting our need. I am powerless. I am vulnerable to sin, Satan, and death. I am curved in on myself. But Christ is an able redeemer. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. What he begins, he finishes, and on the cross, he has acted to settle the matter decisively.